Okay, before I hit the open, I need to ask you guys something. Um, people have been saying, how come you don't take phone calls? And frankly, I kind of miss taking phone calls and, and talking to people on the show. You know, I used to always do phone calls on the old show. You know, when I was doing radio. Yeah, right. So if I want to take a phone call, um, how does that work? Okay, click on the t that tab right there. Yeah, and I'm going to run in here, and I'm going to have a phone right yes. here on my right yeah. side of my face. And I'm gonna say, I don't know if anybody can hear you. Are you close enough to the microphone? Am I close enough now? Yes. Yes, Mansour. Yes, Mansour, my, my IT professional. Yes. I'm going to cue you with this hand signal on the right side of my face, and that means hit the blue button. Oh, okay, right, right over there. Yes. Don't hit the red button. Red is bad. Green is go. Now, I don't see a red or a blue now, but that's because we don't have a phone call right now, right? Yes. Okay. All right. So that's that's how it's going to work? Yes. Hit the blue button, and I'll get the, uh, the the phone call in the air. Just don't hit the red button. Just don't hit the red button. Well, I mean, when the when the phone call's over, then do I hit the red button? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, what, what is the number that people are supposed to call? Do, do we know? I'll tell you what, if I play this, uh, th this will say what it is. Yes, that's it. All right, that, right there. All right, appreciate it. Thanks. Go. Thanks, guys. Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866 609 3711. Okay. No, I got to write it down. 866-609-3711. Because, you know, you, you need to give out the phone number every once in a while. All right. Um, of course, of course, this is episode number 26 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It is Tuesday, November 16th. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer would not allow me to say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support us financially, go to docwashburnshow.com and click on the button that says become a patron. All right, now, that having been said, did you uh, did you see any of the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse trial yesterday, The uh, some of the closing comments there? The closing arguments by the prosecution, closing arguments by the defense. CNN carried the closing arguments by the prosecution, but not the defense. I wonder why that is. Why might that be? Now, I need to set the stage for you what was going on in late August of last year 
in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The police had shot a guy named uh, Jacob Blake because he was trying to get a knife out of a car to go after them. He wanted to get in that car and take off with kids in the back of it. This is a guy who had just assaulted the uh, mother of his child. And so there were riots. And law enforcement had been instructed to stand down and let the destruction of their city happen. And they did. They stood down. So to give you give you a little idea of what that was like last year, um, some guys from the Blaze were there kind of chronicling what was going on. We are out here in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in front of one of several structure fires. This one being an office store on the street. The heat is so intense. We're going to go ahead and we're going to walk back this direction. To my left, you can see we're in front of a car lot, which has been completely vandalized uh, by members. And if you actually want to take a look over here, the correctional facility, as uh, I showed you in our last video, has been completely engulfed in flames. But not, structures are not the only targets. As a uh, dump, I think it was either a tow truck or a dump truck has been targeted. Um, and it actually exploded a little bit earlier. Lastly, I want to point out as we're out here, just take a look at the heat from this. It's just so intense. It's absolutely incredible as law enforcement continues to stay, I guess, doing really nothing. But what can you do when there's a few officers, thousands of protesters, and multiple fires? All right, that was Elijah Schaefer, TV and podcast host over the Blaze TV, um, and Jorge Ventura with the uh, Daily Caller helping him film that. So it was out of control. It was out of control. And so you had a guy there, young man named Kyle Rittenhouse, 17 years old, who earlier in the day had been helping clean off graffiti and that evening had some kind of uh, medical supplies, apparently. He was saying, does any, anybody need a medic? And um, the bad guys decided he was a bad guy and they wanted to take him out. And they tried. I mean, the video is clear. The video is clear. Three open and shut cases of self-defense. There's no question about that. There's no way around that. And yet, he was prosecuted. Now, ordinarily... If you shoot somebody that's trying to kill you, you're not prosecuted. But I guess this is a deep blue area where the Democrats are cool with rioting, with destruction, but not with a 17-year-old kid trying to uh, protect himself. Oh, man. No, 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 no. Hang on. I got to turn the uh, I got to turn the dial down on this thing. Cuz we do this live, you know. Noon Eastern, 11 Central. If you're listening to the uh, the podcast after the fact, and that's cool cuz a lot of people are saying, you know, I never could listen to you uh live when you did the radio show, but this is cool. I can listen whenever I want. And that's great. We love that. However, 
If you want to listen live, all you have to do is uh, download the Podbean app on your phone. So, so this Krauss guy, this prosecutor yesterday, they, they had to twist themselves in knots. I mean, once their star witness, Gage Grosskreutz, last week admitted under oath that Kyle Rittenhouse didn't shoot him until he pointed a gun at his head. Prosecution knew they had lost cause. So they're doing crazy stuff. Crazy stuff like uh, like this from Kraus. And that he had to exhaust all methods. Clearly, if there is provocation, he's guilty. But even outside of provocation, why do you get to immediately just start shooting? As Mr. Binger said, he brought a gun to a fist fight. And he was too cowardly to use his own fist to fight his way out. He has to start shooting. And let's just say, theoretically, that we think, that the 12 of you think that it is reasonable to have used force, deadly force in that situation. Shoots once, takes out his hip. Four shots in three-fourths of a second. And they keep on trying to pretend like there's a pause between between each shot. Yeah, why would you shoot somebody beating you over the head with a uh, with a skateboard? Why would you shoot somebody with a gun in your face? Why would you shoot somebody lunging for your gun? Because you don't want to die. Make no mistake about this. Kyle Rittenhouse is not the only one on trial here. Your right to self-defense in the United States of America is on trial here. And don't you ever forget it. Pray for Kyle Rittenhouse. Pray for justice. Now, this Binger guy yesterday went all Alec Baldwin. Pointed a high-power rifle at the jury with his finger on the trigger just a few weeks after Alec Baldwin shot two people doing the same thing. These guys need to be disbarred. And brought up on charges themselves. Anyway, here's here's bigger. Convince you that Joseph Rosenbaum was going to take that gun and use it on the defendant because they know you can't claim self-defense against an unarmed man like this. You lose the right to self-defense when you're the one who brought the gun. When you're the one creating the danger. You see what I said there? You lose the right to self-defense. If you have a gun on you, cheer the rest. When you're the one provoking other people. As Binger knows, Rittenhouse didn't provoke anybody. He was running away from the people who were trying to kill him. Defendant fired four shots at Joseph Rosenbaum and caused five wounds total. The first shot. Again, four shots. And three-fourths of a second into a guy that's trying to kill him. Into a guy who raped five little boys, age 9 through 11. See, Joseph Rosenbaum would date women who had sons 
of a certain age so he could sodomize them. He'd just gotten out of a mental health facility and was saying, shoot me N-word to Rittenhouse. He wanted to die that night, and he got his wish. Of course, I mean, after that, it didn't turn out so well for him. Because, you know, when, when we leave this, uh, this whole world, we have to stand before our creator and give an account for what we've done here. He wasn't ready for that. So Kyle did a good thing that night. And I'm probably going to eventually be canceled for saying so. But Kyle did a wonderful thing that night. No, 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 no. I mean, no. I no longer work for a big media company that could cancel me for, for saying something like that. But big tech is what it is, and there are only so many ways to get on the Internet, only so many ways to do a podcast. Anyway, back to the large prosecutor, Krauss, yesterday. Everybody takes a beating sometimes, right? Sometimes you get in a, a scuffle and maybe you do get hurt a little bit. Really? Everybody takes a beating every once in a while, right? No, I don't think so. That doesn't mean you can just start plugging people with your full metal jacket AR-15 rounds and no bullets are not bullets. And we heard testimony about that. Bullets are not bullets. No, I, I got nothing. <laughs> what do you mean bullets are not bullets? What? What are you even talking about? No telling. No telling. You want to get a feel for what was going on, the prosecution in the courthouse in Kenosha, Wisconsin yesterday. Here's a short blurb between... Prosecutor Binger, the guy that pointed the gun with his finger on the trigger at the jury, and the judge. Now we had something new, and I was going to probe it. I don't believe you. Oh! There better not be another incident. I'll take the motion under advisement. Oh! Um, and you can respond. Um, when you say that, that you were acting in faith, good faith, I don't believe that, okay? Oh! And you know why he doesn't believe they're acting in good faith? Because they lied so much. Because they lied so much. It's pitiful. They're not acting in good faith. They've never acted in good faith. They've never acted in good faith. As we wait for the jury to render a verdict. And I got to tell you, it's got to be not guilty on all charges. It's got to be. Now, The great Andrew Branca over at uh, Legal Insurrection is concerned 
He says in a new article out late last night, Rittenhouse trial defense delivers disappointingly weak closing argument. Rittenhouse deserved a great deal more than attorney Mark Richards delivered. So let's take a look and see what uh, Bronca is saying here. The closing statements are now done in the Rittenhouse trial, and the jury will now begin deliberations, although not until Tuesday morning. That means, of course, we'll be launching or our verdict watch blog post Tuesday morning, legal insurrections. Keep your eyes there for breaking news on a verdict, and we are. He says, with that, Let's dive into the unpleasant task of noting the poor closing argument presented by the defense in this case. He says this is an unpleasant task because on the legal merits, Kyle Rittenhouse Rittenhouse ought to be acquitted by a unanimous jury on every one of the five felony counts against him. With the state having failed to prove provocation beyond a reasonable doubt and having failed to have disproven Self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And that may still happen. I hope it does. He deserves those acquittals. That having been said, I'm well aware sometimes defendants who deserve acquittal end up being convicted regardless. There might be many reasons that could occur. One of those reasons is a weak legal defense. And particularly a weak defense in the critical closing argument. The last opportunity the defense team has to plead their narrative of innocence to the jury. If the legal defense effort, particularly the closing argument, is as close to perfect as a skilled attorney can hope to deliver and the client gets convicted regardless, well, at least from my perspective as a lawyer, at least I know I did the best I could and it didn't go sideways because I could have done more. When an effort far short of perfect is delivered, again, particularly in a closing argument, and the client deserving of acquittal gets convicted, then one is always left to wonder whether a better closing argument might have made the difference, whether if more had been done, the client would be free today. Kyle Rittenhouse deserved a better closing argument than he got Monday evening, and and if he's convicted on any of these charges, I would find it hard to not attribute such an injustice to much of anything except Monday's weak closing argument by his attorney, Mark Richards, well, accepting, of course, for the politically motivated prosecution itself, but that's precisely what the defense is supposed to stop. The weaknesses in the defense closing argument really fall into two broad categories with a bit of overlap. One category of weakness includes aspects that are inherent to the closing itself, aspects that diminish the closing irrespective of anything the prosecution is arguing. These are really own goals, and there's no good excuse for these at all. The second category of weakness is more of a failure to anticipate and account for the perfectly foreseeable points the state was likely to make on rebuttal. The defense must anticipate these because they will have no opportunity to speak to the jury again after that rebuttal. He says, given the lateness of the hour, I'm going to focus this content solely on this kind of high-level review of the defense closing argument to get it out to all of you in a reasonably timely manner. 
He says, then I'll follow up in the morning with a more detailed breakdown of the state's closing statement by Assistant D.A. Binger and essentially what we expected, a more comprehensive look at the defense closing by Richard and a detailed breakdown of the state's rebuttal by Assistant D.A. Kraus and also pretty poor. So he says, perhaps the single biggest weakness I saw in the defense closing argument was apparent from the first moments of attorney Mark Richards speaking to the jury, in which I suppose was predictable by his generally gruff manner and why I would have preferred to have attorney Cora Chirofisi, the other defense attorney, do the defense closing argument. And that was the angry and personal tone Richards took to the prosecution. Let me make clear, there's no question to my mind that the prosecution in this case has earned every bit of that anger. The state has played fast and loose with both the facts and law in this case, trying to gin up a conviction from crumbs left on the bakery floor, all with the goal of putting Kyle Rittenhouse into a cage for the rest of his life by legal means not soundly based on facts and law. And that's horrible, and it's wrong. The prosecution and the defense attorneys are both lawyers who work with, within the criminal trial setting, but their roles are very different. The inherent power of the state means they're more tightly constrained than is the defense, or at least they ought to be. The mission of the defense is a win by any means necessary. It is the burden of the state to overcome the wily defense and achieve a conviction beyond any reasonable doubt to get that win for their client. For the prosecution, the mission is or is supposed to be much different. The prosecution's mission is supposed to be justice, not merely winning by any means necessary. So I have no doubt that defense attorney Richards' anger and resentment toward the prosecution here is genuine and well-founded. But that's not the point of the closing argument. Closing argument does not exist so that defense counsel can air out his frustrations with the game-playing of the prosecution. Closing argument exists so the defense can have that last, final opportunity to compellingly communicate their narrative of innocence to the jury, the last chance they will ever have to do that to secure that acquittal for the client, even more important than usual when the client is overwhelmingly deserving of an acquittal as he is here. I suggest that using the closing argument as a forum to bitch at the prosecution does not do much at all to help secure that acquittal for the client, especially not when a better choice of tone would likely have been far more effective. Taking the tone of... Those rioters, looters, and arsonists were all scumbags, and this prosecution is just a suit-wearing version of the same chaos. May feel good, and may even be to some degree true. But does it help sell the narrative of innocence to a jury that is looking at all this through entirely different eyes than those of the lead defense counsel? I'll note here that the state has repeatedly referenced Kyle as a kind vigilante, out looking for trouble until he found it. I guess he meant uh, that's a typo. It's a kind of vigilante. Let's start that again. 
I'll note here that the state has repeatedly referenced Kyle as a kind of vigilante out looking for trial until he found it, expecting to be treated as a hero and just trying to be famous per Kyle's own TikTok profile. To the extent that the defense is presenting Kyle as someone they believe should be perceived as a heroic defender and the people he shot or endangered as miscreants who had it coming only helps the prosecution paint their client in this negative light. And it doesn't matter that the, that, that the defense portrayal of Kyle happens to be true. If this jury convicts on any of these charges, and they well might, it will be because the prosecution has been successful in fostering some degree of sympathy among the jurors for the people killed, maimed, and purportedly endangered at the hands of Kyle Rittenhouse. To put it another way, unless that's happened, an acquittal is already secured, and the defense need not engage in the fire and brimstone display at all. But we can't know that, of course, so we must assume that some degree of sympathy for the so-called victims has been successfully fostered by the prosecution. Now, if that's so, you don't make ground with those jurors in particular by shouting your outrage about those horrible people. Instead, you just come across as unsympathetic, which, of course, reflects on your client. A better approach, a better approach, in my humble opinion, is to approach the jury not from one's own position as a righteously outraged defense attorney with a client facing a potentially cataclysmic conviction for no good reason, but rather from the position of those jurors themselves. Acknowledge that the people who died were human beings and you and your client wish they were still alive today. Even with respect to the initial aggressor, Joseph Rosenbaum, whose attack on Kyle triggered all else that followed, Everyone would prefer that he were alive today. Everyone wishes that nobody died that night in Kenosha, and that's particularly true of your client. That having been said, it wasn't your client's choice that these tragic events occurred. It was the result of the choices of those others, choices that compelled your client to exercise his privilege under Wisconsin law to defend himself from violent, life-threatening attack. Acknowledge that perhaps... Those people who attacked Kyle, especially at the second location, might have genuinely believed they were acting to stop some kind of active shooter. They were mist mistaken, of course. Kyle was as far from an active shooter as it was possible to be for reasons you'll detail in a moment. Perhaps even Rosenbaum's attack was triggered by personal demons that nobody but he could understand but which he found impossible to resist. Whatever the reasons for the attacks, no matter how well-intentioned or compelled by personal demons they might have been, none of that, not one bit of it, in any way diminishes the privilege of your client to defend himself from their attacks. There's nothing my client wishes more than that Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber were still alive and with their loved ones and that Gage Grosskreutz was unmaimed. That's the world he would have chosen to exist today if only those people and others had not violently stripped that option from him by their attacks, however motivated, that threatened him with apparent imminent death. My next point would be, or maybe more a reflection of my own temperament, 
and perhaps just a personal or professional preference on my part. But I would have been far more detailed and specific in stepping through the elements of self-defense as applied to each of these felony charges. For each count, I would have made clear in plain language exactly what circumstances would lead Kyle to believe he was facing an unlawful, forcible attack, innocence. That the harm feared from that attack was either already being inflicted or apparently immediately about to occur, imminence. How the nature of the threat presented an apparent risk of death or serious bodily injury, proportionality. And how all of this was not just genuinely believed, but objective, reasonable, reasonableness. Example, failing to address with specificity the issue of an unarmed Rosenbaum. This would have been particularly useful in addressing the all-critical first attack by Joseph Rosenbaum. We have seen how throughout the trial, Assistant DA Binger has been making much of the argument that some of the people attacking Kyle were, quote, unarmed, unquote. Indeed, at one of the pretrial hearings, Binger had actually argued that it could never be lawful for an armed man to shoot an attacker who was unarmed. So the defense ought to have had every expectation that much would be made in closing about the unarmed nature of Rosenbaum's attack on Rittenhouse, and it should have been made crystal clear to the jury how deceptive this framing was. In particular, Rosenbaum was not merely fake-rushing Kyle or poking Kyle with an index finger or even shoving Kyle forcibly backward. Rosenbaum was fighting Kyle for control of his rifle and in the context of the death threats Ryan Balch and Kyle himself had testified about. The moment Rosenbaum is fighting for the control of the rifle, he is no longer unarmed in any meaningful sense of the term. Instead, he's in the process of arming himself with a rifle, with Kyle's rifle. If Rosenbaum were picking up a dropped rifle from the ground, under those circumstances, nobody would doubt he was arming himself for the purpose of using that rifle on Kyle. By not merely picking up some other rifle, but fighting Kyle for his own rifle. Rosenbaum is actually creating a greater threat than that because he's simultaneously disarming Kyle while he's arming himself. No such argument was made by Richards during his close, and I expect I know why, because he approached his closing argument from his own perspective. As someone to whom this argument is obvious and intuitive, rather than from the perspective of jurors who had developed some sympathy for these so-called victims and their families and for whom this notion of arming oneself with the other guy's gun might not be so obvious and intuitive. By addressing this issue only vaguely or not at all, defense attorney Richards leaves a gaping opening for assistant DA Kraus to wobble through his own state rebuttal argument where he went on at length about Rosenbaum's status as unarmed. He said Kyle brought a gun to a bar fight. He said Kyle could have punched Rosenbaum or kicked him in the <clears throat> testicles or struck him with a rifle as an impact weapon. Anything other than fire four rounds into him for the purported offense of merely chasing him. The failure to make the legal concept of imminence clear also left another 
gaping opening for Assistant DA Kraus to suggest to the jury that Kyle was not permitted to defend himself against an attack that was immediately about to occur and avoids injury entirely. Rather, Kraus suggested, sometimes we just have to take a beating before we're privileged to defend ourselves, and Kyle didn't do that. Frankly, that's just an outright misstatement of the law. In fact, a defender need not suffer so much as a scratch before being privileged to use even deadly force in self-defense. In any case, the defense is unable to respond to any of this nonsense by Assistant D.A. Kraus because they don't get to rebut the state rebuttal. So by necessity, such things must be addressed prior to the defense closing argument. And they were not. Personally, I would have preferred to have seen a much more methodical progression through each of the elements of self-defense for each of the criminal charges so that the jurors had an easy, well-marked trial trail to a justification acquittal on each one of them. When it comes to the guide for the jury, you don't want the jury to spend hours in deliberations hacking through those 36 pages of jury instructions from the judge with a layperson's understanding and misunderstanding of the legal concepts, especially when they were when they were so confusingly communicated by Judge Schroeder in the first place. Instead, you want to show the jury the way in a step-by-step fashion. See, you start here, and this is how we, the defense, see the evidence applied to this legal condition, and that brings us right over here where we think this happens, and then over here, and then here, and acquittal. Now let's do count two. Also, an absolutely critical facet of any claim of self-defense is that the perceptions, decisions, and actions be assessed from the perspective of the actual defendant, given their particular attributes, the surrounding circumstances, abilities and disabilities, training and experience, and so forth. In this particular case, we have a 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse who found himself isolated and alone in horrifically chaotic circumstances, not of his own making, and facing a series of apparently lethal attackers. Did Kyle make the best of all possible decisions in each of these use-of-force encounters? Frankly, I think he probably did, but that's not the point. Our concern is that a jury might not think so, that a juror might have thought that with hindsight there was a better option available. We can see how the prosecution pounded home on this point when they kept coming back to the idea that the first round to strike Rosenbaum broke his pelvis and probably left him instantly unable to further threaten Kyle, yet Kyle shot him three more times, including the fatal shot. Strictly speaking, with perfect hindsight, we can see that those successive three shots were probably not actually necessary. Does that make them unlawful? After all, isn't lawful self-defense conditioned on necessity? Well, no, actually. Lawful self-defense is conditioned upon apparent necessity. And there was no way in that brief three-fourths of a second, three-fourths of a second, in which Kyle fired his first and last shot into Rosenbaum, that Kyle could have known that the first round had effectively knocked Rosenbaum to the ground. During that three-fourths of a second, Rosenbaum continued to present 
as apparently diving and lunging for control of Kyle's rifle and thus continue to present as an apparently deadly force threat for each of those four rounds. Okay? Now, Binger touched on the question of whether all four of these rounds were genuinely necessary and therefore lawful or whether that third or fourth shot, the kill shot to the back, was unnecessary and unlawful, as the state argued. Richard's response wasn't just not helpful. It might well have been harmful. And again, because he approached the issue from his own perspective rather than from the perspective of a juror who had perhaps developed some sympathy for the so-called victims in this case. Instead of speaking to this issue on the basis that self-defense law provides for, the reasonable perceptions of Kyle of apparent circumstances and the context of his age, prior experiences, death threat, current chaotic circumstances, and so forth, defense attorney Richards used an argument that likely angered one or more jurors. Let me take a step back for a moment. Recall that these Kenosha riots were over the police shooting of Jacob Blake, something the prosecution touched upon repeatedly. Well, the prosecution is not repeatedly mentioning the Jacob Blake catalyst of those nights of chaos because it's harmful to the prosecution. In fact, much of the world believes the false narrative that Jacob Blake was wrongfully shot seven times in the back by Kenosha police officers, later deemed justified, and that therefore, there was certainly genuine legitimacy to the protests that followed, and perhaps a bit of, I don't like it, but I understand where it's coming from, even for some of the less prominent property damage caused by actual rioters. In other words, there are a lot of people who genuinely, if mistakenly, believe that the shooting of Jacob Blake was, as they might put it, a profound social injustice. Now, with this background in mind, and assuming that there are prospectively several people like that on the jury. How did defense attorney Richards decide to contextualize Kyle's firing four rounds into Rosenbaum? Well, he told the jury he's seen cases right here in Kenosha where someone shot another person seven times and that was deemed to be fine. Now, he didn't say the name Jacob Blake, but I'm pretty sure everybody in Kenosha knows the name of the guy who was shot seven times in what was later deemed a justified shooting. It should go without saying that anybody who believes the shooting of Jacob Blake in the back was an obvious social injustice is going to feel any more favorable to Kyle having shot Rosenbaum four times, including in the back, in an analogy made by his own defense attorney. Another dropped ball was in the context of the AR versus handgun issue raised by the prosecution numerous times throughout the trial. Binger suggested to the jury that, hey, all Grosskreutz had was a pistol. And in contrast, Kyle had this giant, powerful AR-15 round rifle with a 30-round magazine loaded with full metal jacket bullets. That can't be fair. <clears throat> Defense attorney Richards' only response to this was a dismissive, hey, guns are guns, bullets are bullets. And from his own perspective as a criminal defense attorney, that's pretty much 100% right. From a legal perspective, it's all deadly force, both pistol and rifle, are readily capable of causing death or serious 
bodily injury under the circumstances in place, and so there's really no legal distinction between them. But that's not necessarily how a jury is going to look at it. A pistol and a rifle, in fact, are different, with different capabilities, and there was testimony to this at trial. A typical police body armor can stop pistol rounds, but not AR rounds. Pistols are routinely carried for personal protection public, and ARs only rarely so. Pistols have a relatively short range, but an AR can shoot out to 550 yards. In many obvious ways, the Glock pistol of Grosskreutz and the AR-15 of Kyle are substantively different, and simply dismissively saying guns are guns, bullets are bullets doesn't adequately address this. Instead, Defense Attorney Richards should have conceded that it's true that in many respects the pistol and the rifle here are very different, but that they were not different in any way that applied in these particular circumstances. This was not a case where the two men were 550 yards apart, for example, so that the rifle was effective but the pistol harmless. Under these circumstances, either weapon was readily available, readily able, that is, to inflict death or serious bodily injury to another, and therefore there was no meaningful distinction between them for the purposes of this trial. That's a great stuff. I'll put it on my Facebook page here in a little bit. That is a great Andrew Branca over legal insurrection. And the article from late last night entitled Rittenhouse Trial Defense Delivers Disappointingly Weak Closing Argument. And of course, we hope and we pray that Kyle will be found not guilty of all five charges today. But I needed to share that one with you. just in case it goes sideways. Know what I'm saying? All right, now that having been said, <clears throat> I just want to ask you something. Are you like most Americans? Did Obamacare, the so-called Affordable Care Act, make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high co-pays keep you from going to the doctor? If you answered yes to any of those questions, you need to get in touch with my friend Art Wilborn. His website is entitled myfamilyhealthplan.com. And Art has affordable plans. You can save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductibles, and no copays. You know, people are like, wait, that's still possible in this day and age? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Let me run that by again. Affordable health care plans save 30 to 50% on premiums, personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, and no copays. And another really great thing with myfamilyhealthplan.com, you get an insurance plan that won't insult your morality. You're not going to have to cover abortion and stuff like that that would offend your deeply held religious beliefs. Now, Art Wilborn is licensed in Arkansas and Texas, our two biggest states for listeners, for folks who download the podcast, 
But if you're in one of the other 48, he can hook you up with somebody who can do the same thing he does in Texas and Arkansas. So go to Art's website, myfamilyhealthplan.com, book a free consultation, and Art Wilborn will make sure there are no gaps in your coverage either. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com, and you will be glad that you did. All right. That having been said, I got I to gotta take a drink of water. So uh, give me just a second. We're going to do this. Thanks for listening to the Doc Washburn Show. We are unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. Many of you have asked, how can we help support the show? Really easy. Go to DocWashburnShow.com and click Become a Patron at the top right corner of the website or click the Podbean logo where it says, Be My Patron on Podbean. We sure do appreciate your support of the Doc Washburn Show. All right, and we are keeping uh, an eye on the Rittenhouse trial where jury deliberations are underway. Now, I shared with you the concerns that a great legal mind, Andrew Branca, has about the defense's closing. So let me share with you what uh, James Gagliano, retired FBI supervisory special agent and doctoral candidate in Homeland Security at St. John's, has to say about the prosecution. James A. Gagliano, last night over the New York Post, article entitled, From Irresponsibly Pointing a Gun to Tisking, DA's close in Rittenhouse trial was pathetic. He says the case against Kyle Rittenhouse collapsed almost before it began. As the prosecution and defense made their closing arguments Monday, with the jury likely to get the case Tuesday, it looks even more likely that he will be acquitted on murder charges. Rittenhouse killed two men and wounded a third while protecting businesses during riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He argues self-defense. The performance of assistant DA Thomas Binger was especially Pathetic. The prosecutor sought to diminish some of the actions committed by Joseph Rosenbaum before his encounter with Rittenhouse, sarcastically intoning, quote, he tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road and they tipped it over to stop some bearcats, and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word, tisk, 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 as he mockingly wagged his finger. This could not have played well to the jury. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting. Because I, I, think, I think he's got a point here. Let me Let me just play for you what Gagliano is talking about here. And you can hear for yourself how ridiculous this sounds. He just happens to stumble into it. So what does he do that night? Oh, let me tell you all the awful things Joseph Rosenbaum did. He tipped over a porta potty that had no one in it. He swung a chain. He lit a metal garbage dumpster on fire. 
Oh, and there's this empty wooden flatbed trailer that they pulled out in the middle of the road and they tipped it over to stop some bear cats and they lit it on fire. Oh, and he said some bad words. He said the N-word. I'm hoping that even if Bronca is right, that the defense did a poor job defending their client, that Gagliano is right, and that the prosecution did an even worse job. But wait, there's more. Gagliano says, in a trial in which the defendant is being accused of reckless actions, Binger committed his own reckless actions while attempting to act out Rittenhouse's actions with his rifle. With a recent accidental shooting on a movie set in New Mexico still fresh in our minds, Alec Baldwin, Binger sweeps the courtroom spectator section with a weapon and incredulously breaks firearms handling safety rule number one, never place your finger on the trigger unless and until you have acquired a target you may have to neutralize. Yet another example of those prosecuting gun crimes with little understanding of guns. Rittenhouse's attorney, Mark Richards, rightly said the case explodes in Binger's face. When prosecutors reflexively file impossible-to-prove charges in order to satisfy a mob, they almost always get manhandled in court. The top charge here is first-degree intentional homicide and overcharging not backed up by the facts. Witnesses and testimony have revealed that Rittenhouse only shot the three men after they were charging him, hitting him with a skateboard, or pointing a gun at him. Kenosha Kenosha County Judge Bruce E. Schroeder gave one win for the state when he allowed the jury to consider lesser charges. It has obviously dawned on the prosecutors that their case is not solid. Rittenhouse may be vindicated in court, but someone who hasn't faced up to his actions is our president in September 2020. You remember this now? September of last year, Biden inferred that Rittenhouse was a white supremacist. If he's acquitted, will Dementia Joe issue an apology or double down and cave to political pressure by leaning on the Justice Department to bring civil rights charges for three white men? Unfortunately, the latter seems more likely. Yeah, they'll keep going for him. They'll keep going for him no matter what. You know, I, I would be, I'd be shocked if they didn't. I would actually, absolutely be stunned if they didn't. So, um, we also have an article: a criminal history check on Gage Grosskreutz, the guy whose bicep was vaporized when. Rittenhouse shot him. An objective look at his criminal history. The Wisconsin criminal justice system leaves a lot of ambiguity as far as conviction info. So they've attached critical the official Wisconsin Department of Justice records on Gage Grosskreutz. And they make no assertions of what he has 
or hasn't been convicted of. Oh my goodness. How many pages? 92 pages. Oh my goodness. Yeah, a lot of stuff here. Simple assault, domestic violence, burglary of home, criminal trespass to dwelling, disorderly conduct, criminal damage to property, DUI, possession of firearm by felon, possession of firearm while intoxicated, endangering safety by use of dangerous weapons, warrants, um, prowling. Good grief. There's star witness. Prosecuting star witness. And remember, remember now, testified under oath when the defense got a crack at him that no, Kyle didn't shoot me until I pointed my gun at him. Okay. Okay, well, bless your heart. I don't think it's going to go well for you. Don't think it's going to go well for you. All right, now, um, this came out a couple of days ago, and I need to tell you about it because I don't know if anybody else will. Over the epictimes.com, Zachary Stiber has the article, January 6th defendants taken out of cells on stretchers, according to a court filing. Multiple January 6th defendants were taken out of their cells on stretchers at the jail in the District of Columbia on November 11th, according to court filing. Situation started when one of the defendants refused to wear a mask. At least that's what family members of Kelly Meggs, who's being held in the D.C. jail, told his lawyer. Prison guards then began spraying a chemical substance described as some kind of mace or pepper spray, according to a filing in federal court. The family told Joseph, uh, pardon me, the family told Jonathan Mosley, their lawyer, they sprayed mace or some type of gas at an inmate and kept missing, so it went into an intake that fed into other cells, and the lady with the key left because she didn't like the gas, so the inmates in the cells who were being fed the gas from that intake were locked in for like 15 minutes while it was going into their rooms and they couldn't see or breathe. More than one of the defendants was taken out on stretchers for medical attention. Julie Kelly, a writer for American Greatness, reported on November 11th, prison guards filled an area of the jail with chemical spray and three detainees had to be taken out on stretchers. Mosley and the D.C. Department of Corrections did not respond to requests for comment. Well, of course they didn't. Of course they didn't. The lawyer said his client wasn't in one of the cells that the gas was being cycled into by the ventilation system. He urged the court to explore with the Bureau of Prisons and Congress whether any federal funds are already or can be allocated to repair and upgrade the D.C. jail facilities. Neither prosecutors nor the judge have responded yet to the filing. The jail has been under heightened scrutiny in recent months due to its holding dozens of people accused of participating in the January 6th breach of the U.S. Capitol. One defendant, Christopher Worrell, was released from pretrial custody last week because U.S. District Judge Royce Lamberth 
became troubled by the lack of proper medical care he received from the jail. The U.S. Marshals Service showed up unannounced at the facilities in mid-October. Officials deemed the part holding January 6th detainees suitable but found conditions in another part that do not meet the minimum standards of confinement. At least that's what the agency said in a recent statement. Lamont Ruffin, acting U.S. Marshal for Washington, told Quincy Booth, director of the D.C. Department of Corrections, in a letter that he personally went to the jail and saw evidence of systemic failures. He said, prison guards routinely shut off water to cells as punishment, and multiple cells had large amounts of standing human sewage in the toilets. Additionally, guards were observed antagonizing detainees, and hot meals were observed being served cold and congealed. Jail officials were ordered to transfer about 400 detainees, or 36% of the inmates in the central treatment facility, one of the facilities that make up the D.C. jail system, to a prison in another state. U.S. Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene, Georgia, and Louis Gomer, Texas, after months of attempts, were able to tour the facilities last week. Greene said she witnessed terrible conditions, including January 6 detainees receiving very poor food and virtually no medical care. You know, there are 535 people in Congress, 100 in the Senate, and 435 in the U.S. House. And you got these two people. speaking up for how these political prisoners are being tormented and tortured in jail. These two people. Where's everybody else? Just what I want to know. Where, where are you when it counts? That's what I'm asking. Muriel Bowser... Democrat mayor of Washington, D.C., who apparently helped Marjorie Taylor Greene and Louis Gomer get access to the jail, told the Epic Times in an email, quote, I want to be very clear that we will deal with those deficiencies so that we have a safe jail until such time that the district is able to build a new one, unquote. Uh, guards tormenting Prisoners has nothing to do with building a new jail. Just so you know. Avis Buchanan, director of the Public Defender Service for the District of Columbia, said in a statement that it has called out the treatment of detainees at the D.C. jail for years. She said the inhumane conditions have included long-term solitary confinement for people with no disciplinary issues, lack of running water, full illumination of cells for 24 hours per day, resulting in sleep deprivation, cells soiled with feces and blood, lack of air conditioning during the summer and heat during the winter, lack of proper medical care, failure to provide mental health treatment, and physical and mental abuse by correctional officers of people in their custody. Now, she says this has been going on for years. Now, why do you think that would be? Councilman Charles Allen, Democrat Party, 
chairman of the D.C. City Council's Committee on the Judiciary and Public Safety, described the situation as a crisis during a remote hearing this week. He said, I do not use that term lightly. The District of Columbia has a moral and constitutional duty to provide humane and dignified conditions of confinement and to do so immediately. And that's not happening here. Wonder why. Now, D.C. Attorney General Carl Racine, also a Democrat, acknowledged during the hearing that concerns about the condition in the jail received little attention until they were raised, of course, by mostly white defendants accused of perpetrating the January 6th breach, adding that's not because people weren't complaining. Okay. But the first I've heard about it were uh, complaints concerning the January 6th defendants. Chris Geldart, a deputy mayor, told council members that there are systemic issues at the jail and the issues raised by U.S. Marshals were being addressed, but also claimed that the problems were not so pervasive that the jail has become uninhabitable. Uh, I disagree. Geldart also confirmed the Marshals were blocked from reentering the facilities about a week after their, their inspection, pending the decision on the warden. Oh, I see. The D.C. Department of Correct, well, fire the warden then. The D.C. Department of Corrections and the U.S. Marshal Service on November 10th entered into a memorandum of understanding that outlines plans to improve conditions at the jail. Well, I guess that hasn't happened. Each party is forbidden from issuing statements or speaking to the media about the agreement without consent from the other party. Oh, oh, okay. So they got a big old broom, big old push room, and just uh, sweep everything under the rug then. I mean, that's what it looks like to me. Not even going to lie, fam, that's exactly what it looks like to me. Just sweep everything under the rug. I mean, this is... um. This is absolutely ridiculous. There's no question about it. Now, we've got an article here, and I guess uh, I guess I'm being shadow banned by Facebook because I put the article up over an hour ago. And one share, but no comments, no likes, no dislikes. So that's all the more reason I think I need to uh, tell you about this because there have been so many responses to it on Twitter about how amazing and phenomenal this article is. And i just tell you right up front, I understand part of it. I'm not bright enough to get the whole thing, but I, I want to just get to the summary of it for you. So maybe, maybe you can take a look at it. You probably understand more than I, I do. Okay, this is over at theethicalskeptic.com. 
article entitled China's Communist Party Concealed SARS-CoV-2 Presence in China as Far Back as March 2018. And it says a world inquiring about the origins of SARS-CoV-2 has been met with repeated antipathy and lack of cooperation on the part of the Chinese Communist Party. Consequently, any speculation that the CCP concealed the presence of SARS-CoV-2 prior to December 2019 must be researched through an examination of corroborating yet circumstantial evidence. Inference, which may be ascertained only through prosecution along a series of must-answered critical questions. The Chinese Communist Party owes the entire world restitution for its negligent handling and release of a virus which they fully understood could be deployed as a weapon of war, a virus which has destroyed human rights, worldwide economies, and furthermore resulted in over 5 million deaths globally to date. All right, well, okay, part of the problem here is CDC admitted over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, 94% of the deaths they say from COVID or actually just with COVID. People have an average of over two and a half of other, uh, other comorbidities. So we don't really know how many people die from COVID. But the point that is made here is that the Communist Chinese Party knew about this all along. And this is part of a, uh, part of a conspiracy, part of a process to take down freedom in the West. And I think they make that point pretty well. So it's already on my Facebook page. You want to go to Facebook and type in Doc Washburn and take a look at it and see what you think. Because I find it remarkable. So there is a, uh, there's a process that the liberal media engages in. They try to encourage the Republican Party to nominate the weakest possible candidate to give their candidate for president a better chance to win even without all the massive cheating they did in 2020. Let me give you a perfect example. The mainstream media loved John McCain until he became nominee. And next thing you know, New York Times says it front page article about him having an affair with a with a lobbyist, a female lobbyist, something like that. So they set you up just trying to knock you down. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they loved Romney when he was exceedingly liberal governor of the state of Massachusetts. But once he actually was challenging Barack Obama, then they didn't love him so much anymore, right? And, and and Mitt was shocked. Romney was shocked. Well, McCain was shocked too because, my French, my French. I'm the mainstream media's favorite Republican, my French. Going to reach across the aisle, my French. Barack Obama is a decent patriotic American, my French, my French. He never saw it coming. Never saw it coming. So guess who the mainstream media is trying to prop up now? 
if you said Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, you would be correct. Let's see what CNN is doing. They got a, a special coming out of Chris Christie. Here's the promo. What's it like being a high-profile Trump supporter? I wanted to try to make him the best candidate he could be. Turned sharp critic. I felt absolutely sick to my stomach. Find out when I talk to former Governor Chris Christie about his Jersey roots. I've been to 137 Springsteen concerts. His weight. How could you be a leader? You can't push yourself away from the dinner table. And the future of his party. Are you considering running for president in 2024? Join Dana Bash for being Chris Christie tonight at 10. Man, a guy like Christie, Chris Christie, felt absolutely sick to his stomach. Now, for some people, maybe you could take some Pepto or something. But for a guy like Christie, that could be fatal, no matter what. I mean, I don't know that there's anything you could take. You know what I'm saying? It's a joke. Come on. He left himself wide open. Give me a break. So let me tell you what CNN is trying to do here. Let me share with you an analogy. I used to do a local talk radio show in Little Rock, Arkansas. And when I first got to Arkansas, first started doing a show in Little Rock, Arkansas, July of 2014, occasionally I would get a call from a listener who would say something along the lines of, with a sense of dread, Doc, um, Hillary Clinton is going to be our next president, and there's nothing we can do about it. And I just, I mean, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, Doc, but they get away with everything. And, um, and yeah, so, um, of course, not having any idea that Trump was going to get into it and that Trump would be, as wildly popular as he was in 2016. But I think I think these people just pretty much figured, okay, Jeb Bush would be the Republican nominee in 2016, and he would just roll over for Hillary. And that's just, you know, nothing you could do about it, right? So we were blessed, we were surprised, we were amazed that it turned out that Donald J. Trump got the nomination instead of Jeb Bush. Because everybody thought that Jeb Bush was going to get it. He's going to roll over for Hillary. I mean, Jeb Bush had already given Hillary a medal, Medal of Freedom, at the Constitution Center in, in Philly. So nobody thought he had a chance of actually standing up to her in a national election. Everybody that I talked to in Arkansas thought it was going to be a cakewalk for Hillary. You know? She'd just roll right over Jeb Bush. And Jeb Bush, of course, was going to get the nomination because why? It was his turn. And that's the way Republicans have been playing it for a long time, right? Yeah, who cares about who would be the most electable candidate? Let's give it to whose ever turn it was. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know? You had um, Bill Clinton back in the 90s who certainly knew how to talk to the TV cameras, 
And in 96, Republicans said, well, it's Bob Dole's turn, you know? Who cares that he comes across like some kind of curmudgeon on TV? It's his turn. So if he wins, he wins. He loses, he loses. So we nominated in 1996 a guy, hey, stop lying about my war records, eh? Yeah, so a wise guy, huh? How'd that work out? In 08, it was John McCain's turn. So we nominated this guy who just did not even resonate with the Republican base. No way, shape, form, or manner. In 2010, Democrats lost a lot of seats in Congress because of Obamacare. So two years later, we nominated the guy whose turn it was. It was Mitt Romney's turn, even though he was the one guy who couldn't make the case for why Obamacare was bad because he had done it himself on a statewide level when he was governor of Massachusetts. You see what I'm getting out here? So CNN wants people to think that it's Chris Christie's turn. Of course, I mean, how many Republicans watch CNN anyway, you know? They probably don't have any idea. But I'll say this. Um, it's, it's funny because it's so predictable. What they try to do is so predictable that it's funny. And it's not going to work. Um, how many people remember Superstorm Sandy? We have a good many listeners in New York and New Jersey. Superstorm Super Storm Sandy back in 2012. And shortly before the election between Obama and Mitt Romney, there was, at that time, current governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, walking along the beach arm-in-arm arm with Obama. A lot of Republicans have... Uh, Long memories. They don't forget stuff like that. So CNN, bless their hearts, wants Chris Christie to be the Republican nominee for, for president in 2016. Pardon me, in 2024. And it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. Just so you know. All right, that having been said, We have talked recently about the fact that Joe Biden's nominee for comptroller of the currency, the person who would oversee the banks here in this country, a woman named Saul, Saul Omarova, was born and raised in the Soviet Union, went to, uh, went to university there, and she wants to get rid of private bank accounts. She wants to get rid of private banks. She wants everybody's bank account to be controlled by the Fed so that if they need money, they can take money away from us. Look, no, no, no. We played the clips for you. Go back and listen to the last couple episodes. We played the clips for you. Okay? So 
I've got a little two-minute clip I need to play for you by a woman named Catherine Austin Fitz. And she is brilliant. For the last 23 years, she has been um, president of Solari Incorporated and publisher of the Solari Report, managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services, LLC. She served as managing director and member of the board of directors of the Wall Street Investment Bank, Dylan Reed and Company. And she also served as Assistant Secretary of Housing and Federal Housing Commissioner at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in the first Bush administration back late 80s, early 90s. I was the president of Hamilton Securities Group. I mean, she's really, really sharp. And you need to hear what she is saying about people like Joe Biden and Saul Omarova and how they want to control us financially because this is scary stuff. So we got this clip that's about about two minutes long. And she, she, I hope you don't bail on me here. Her voice is not the most pleasant in the world, but it is the content here, which is so crucial. You need to know what they are up to and what they are trying to do. This is not the first time in history that plague laws have been used to centralize control, control of transportation, control of labor, control of banking and bank accounts, control of all the different kinds of capital that make up human civilization. But the COVID laws are particularly draconian in the history of plague laws because not only do they control labor, transportation, banking, but now with advances in digital technology, we're looking at complete control through the banking system of 100% of all assets, ultimately. So what what happens here? Control of 100% of all assets totally. Can you imagine? Here's more from uh, Catherine Austin Fitz. For many, many years, most of us have grown up in a world in the Western democracies where we have a balance of power between the bankers and the people. The central bankers control monetary policy and the people vote for an electorate that controls fiscal policy. Now what we're watching with COVID laws all around the world is the central bankers moving in and exercising essentially a coup d'etat where they take control of fiscal policy as well. And again, with the advances in digital technology, vaccine passports will not be about health. Vaccine passports are part of a financial transaction control grid that will absolutely end human liberty in the West. Yeah, that's bad. I don't know if anybody else is talking about it, but uh, one of the things we try to do here at the Doc Washburn Show is alert you to things going on in our society that nobody else is talking about. Here's the rest of the warning from Catherine Austin Fitz. For many years, I have fought and written against central control of the financial system. We've centralized more and more capital, more and more control. 
And we've done it with tactics called divide and conquer. And we've all experienced many different divide and conquer tactics, men against women, black against white. But now we have a new one called the vaccinated versus the non-vaccinated. Because if you're going to centralize control of every aspect of people's lives and literally strip them of their assets and their property rights, you need a new, more venal divide and conquer. And we can't let that happen. Well, I um, I hope that um, I hope that Miss Catherine Austin Fitz and other people like her are able to keep that from happening. See, one part of the problem is there's so many people who don't understand what's up. They don't understand what our government and the globalists are trying to accomplish. You know, when I go into a grocery store in a very red area of Arkansas and see half the people in there have masks on, I'm thinking, y'all just don't get it. You know, when I get comments on social media, uh, serves you right, you should have gotten the jab. Y'all just don't get it. So I try to share with you stuff from people who do get it. And Catherine Austin Fitz or Solari Advisors what she's saying is very concerning. Now, I wonder if anybody on the Senate or House Banking Committee is talking about this. Anybody trying to do anything about it? I don't know. But what I do know, well, the House is called the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services. What I do know is that U.S. Representative from Central Arkansas who's on that U.S. House Committee on Financial Services, ran for Congress eight years ago promising to be a fiscal conservative and to get the budget under control, and that never happened. A guy named French Hill. If you're outside of Arkansas, you've probably never heard of him. Anyway, he's uh, running for re-election next year, and this is the guy that in January this year said that President Trump's rhetoric leading up to January 6th of the Capitol was unforgivable. This is a guy who proudly voted to keep Liz Cheney in Republican leadership of the United States House of Representatives, saying she was an outstanding conservative he'd known for over 30 years. And I know when I was still doing the local talk show in Little Rock, my listeners were begging for me, for somebody, for anybody, to challenge French Hill in the Republican primary May 24th of next year. Well, I'm told that French Hill will have a primary opponent. And I plan to interview him Thursday. Yeah, we'll tell you who exactly he's going to be. Because at this point, Republican voters who have a big old rhino supposedly representing them in the U.S. House like French Hill and Central Arkansas or a number of other rhinos like Liz Cheney in Wyoming, they, they'd vote for Donald Duck. 
in a Republican primary over this person. I, I might even vote for Daffy Duck. But anyway, I just want to let you know about that. Got to let you know about that. And Fauci. Who is trying to bring Fauci under control? Check it out, y'all. One of the things that to me was most difficult to accept is that we put together a good plan for how we were going to try and dampen down the spread of infection early on, thinking that that was accepted by everybody. And then the next day, the president saying free Michigan, free Virginia. I didn't quite understand what the purpose of that was, except to put this misplaced perception about people's individual right to make a decision that supersedes the societal safety. Let me just stop right there. People's individual rights to make a decision that supersedes the societal safety. Again, we're talking about a virus with a 99.98% survival rate. And last time I checked, our Constitution has a bill of rights in it, not a bill of societal safety. This guy's evil. I wonder if Pfizer has been paying him off. It would not surprise me, you know. It would not at all surprise me. I mean, how many times do you get to lie under oath in Congress and say, no, my agency did not fund gain-of-function research? And the Wuhan, I mean, pardon me, at the Wuhan Virology Lab in Wuhan, China. And it comes out that you certainly did. You certainly did. You know, I don't know if you're aware, if you've seen the video of Biden doing his uh, his Zoom call with the premier of China, but Biden is all grins. Hello, my old friend. Got a big flag of China next to Biden. Yeah, see, Biden's Justice Department, they got a problem with you. If you dare to question your local school board, but they got no problem with the genocidal murderers in charge of the Communist Chinese Party. No, they're Biden's buddies. They're Biden's buddies. Now, let me remind you from last fall, Republican Party was trying to warn you if Biden wins, China wins. And they brought the receipts. China is going to eat our lunch. Come on, man. We want to see China rise. It is in our self-interest that China continue to prosper. They're not bad folks, folks. But guess what? They're not a they're, they're not, they're competition for us. A rising China can be a significant asset for the region and the world, and selfishly for the United States. We want China to grow. What are we, what are we, war 
uh, global domination by our enemies, something like that. A reminder, we have figured out how to take phone calls. So if, you, if you're listening live, you want to uh, get a hold of us, the number to call is 866-609-3711. Right, that having been said, I need to um, share some more audio with you. This is a gender therapist speaking at the Dominican Hospital Foundation. The Dominican Hospital Foundation. And I, I did some looking around on their website to try to figure out if they actually had any kind of uh, connection, any kind of religious organization, because uh, you don't have to be a Catholic to know that uh, Dominicans are an order in the Catholic Church. But I, I don't have any idea if... I can't figure out if the Dominican Hospital Foundation is uh, uh, religiously has any kind of religious connection. It's like you know, if you live in a in a city where there's a Baptist medical center, well, that's from what I'm told, that's just a name. You know, they're not uh, they're not actually connected to the Baptist Church. I had been in Little Rock for a few years before I came to that realization. And it was uh, kind of surprising because ordinarily, you know, you see something like that, Baptist Medical Center, and you think, oh, well, that, that must be connected to the, the Southern Baptist church denomination or something like that, but no, no, no. Apparently just a, a name that comes in handy. Anyway, we have this gender therapist speaking at Dominican Hospital Foundation. and These people are crazy. So let me give you an example. I have a colleague who's transgender, and there is a video of him as a toddler. So he... Uh, was assigned female at birth. There's a video of him as a toddler tearing barrettes out of then her hair and throwing them on the ground. He was assigned female at birth. In other words, this is a woman who was born a little girl, and this woman you're hearing is lying and saying, no, it's actually a guy. More and more our society is enabling this kind of uh, mental health issue. But here's more. And sobbing. That's a gender message. And when it happens not just once or twice or three times, that's a gender message. Sometimes kids between the age of one and two with beginning language will say, I boy, when you say girl. Those two words, I boy. That's not a pre-verbal, but an early verbal message. It's, and sometimes there's an urge, the tendency to say, well, honey, no, you're a girl because little girls have vaginas and you have a vagina, so you're a girl. Are you hearing this? Are you hearing this? 
It's evil. It's evil. The guy who started this whole thing about um, the difference between uh, sex and gender was a horrible child abuser himself, a guy named Dr. John Money. Uh, you, you might want to look him up sometime. It's what he did was so was so graphic. So horrible. And by the way, when you do look him up, you might want to use DuckDuckGo instead of Google because um, Google will probably suppress the bad news about him. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, here's more. And then when they get a little older, you hear them say, did you not listen to me? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, when we're teenagers, we all remember what we said at one or two. What an idiot. I said, I am a boy with a vagina. Okay, but they can't. But see, you can't be. You can't be. If you got female parts, you're a girl. If you got male parts, you're a boy. You know? You can't be. I mean, what's next? I said I'm a marsupial. Did you not listen to me? I don't have a pouch, but I am a kangaroo, doggone it. Same thing. Same thing. Here, give me some boxing gloves. I'll prove to you I'm a kangaroo. Just like in those uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons. Come on. Say that between one and two. But they can show you about what they want to play with and if they feel uncomfortable about how you are responding to them and their gender if you're misgendering them. So you look for those kinds of actions like tearing. A no, you don't really. Hey. Hey, lady, misgender this. So you look for those kinds of actions, like tearing a skirt off. There was one, I think this was in the Barbara Walters special, where this child wore the um, little onesies with snap-ups in between the legs, and at age one would unsnap them to make a dress. So you look for those kinds of actions, like tearing a skirt off. There was one, what? I think this was in the Barbara Walters special, what? where this child wore the um, little onesies with snap-ups in between the legs, and at age one, would unsnap them to make a dress. Does anybody actually believe this garbage? Are you kidding me? Our Lord said that the um, the eye is the light of the whole body. And if the eye is dark, how great is that darkness? People deceived and being deceived. And have the dress flow. This was a child who was assigned male. That's a, that's a communication, a pre-verbal communication. It's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. But the problem is, the problem is that 
the only effective pushback against this is from the the Christian worldview. The only effective pushback against this is from the Christian worldview. And so I'll share some of that with you. Um, from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, in the New Testament of the Bible, it's called Romans. Starting with verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now this woman that we just heard from, she's suppressing the truth, which is that when you are born, there is either male DNA or female DNA in every cell of your body, and nothing can change that. Paul continues, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Yes, what we just heard was a woman who had become futile in her thinking and whose foolish heart has been darkened. Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for the error. Now, in this day and age, it's very unpopular to say these things, but it's true, and God's word does not change. Paul concludes the first chapter saying, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, 
heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous and de- righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So there you go. There you go. That is my analysis of the uh, the gender specialists, as it were. Now, if I may, because over 70% of the people who download the Doc Washburn show these days are from outside Arkansas, and that's great because the idea is have a national audience, and we appreciate you. I, I must mention, though, the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, we, we refer to him as asymptomatic Asa. The Arkansas State Legislature was wise enough to pass a law protecting children from being sterilized, protecting, protecting children from surgical castration, chemical castration, the puberty-blocking drugs, trying to protect children from being sterilized. And asymptomatic Asa Hutchinson, the governor, vetoed the bill. Vetoed the bill because although he professes to be a Christian, he believes that sometimes God makes mistakes and boys should be allowed to transition to being girls and girls should be allowed to transition to being boys. And we're talking about minor children here. Not just minors, but children who haven't even hit puberty yet. And so instead of believing that God doesn't make any mistakes, if he makes you female, you're supposed to be female. If he makes you male, you're supposed to be male. This professing Christian Republican governor of a deeply conservative state, Arkansas, said, no, no, we don't want to outlaw that. We got to let this, we got to let this keep going. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, one is that this is a show where certainly faith intersects politics and it's a very political thing. His, his Republican legislature overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly overrode his veto, and that was a good thing. But the other part of it is how people can claim to be one thing, but they don't actually believe what you have to believe to be that thing. And it's just one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, when you listen, when you listen and you heard this woman claiming that um, toddlers, for instance, can tell you that they were assigned the wrong gender at birth, right? You know you're dealing with some kind of psychosis here. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And yet, 
overwhelmingly accepted. I'll never forget, I was watching a conversation with Jerry Seinfeld and a few other comedians a few years ago when Bruce Jenner announced he changed his name and decided he was a woman now. And instinctively, right off the bat, right off the bat, people as intelligent, as educated as Jerry Seinfeld, immediately were calling Bruce Jenner she. Well, I'm not going to play that game. Never have, never will. Too much at stake. Way too much at stake. So we try to let you know what's going on here. Uh, by the way, Biden announced that uh, the U.S. strongly believes in his little um, FaceTime meeting there with uh, Chairman Xi of the Communist Chinese Party. Biden made it clear that uh, the U.S. official policy, we believe in the one China policy, that Taiwan is not a separate nation. So... Sad to say, he gave the green light. Hey, you want to go ahead and take over? That's fine. That's fine. I find myself uh, drawn on a regular basis to the writings of John Hayward over Breitbart, who says some remarkable things out there on Twitter, and here's one of them. He says, totalitarians constantly rewrite history, not only to make the past conform to party ideology, but as a means of demoralization and control. There's nothing more dispiriting than being forced to relinquish your history and recite a new false history. Kill a tree by cutting its roots. He says, controlling history lets totalitarians construct a narrative of false consciousness around their adversaries. Those who remember the history and cherish traditions disliked by the party are treated like they're insane. Accurate memory becomes a form of mental illness. When history is written in sand, shifting and changing as party leadership demands, the people become anxious and fearful. Remembering the wrong thing can get you in trouble. You have to pay close attention to party decrees to know today's correct history. Rewriting history is a great way to separate children from their parents which is always a high priority for totalitarians. Children are taught the latest version of party history and told their parents are ignorant. History becomes a special bond between children and the party. Keeping history in flux prevents cultural traditions from taking root and threatening the authority of the state. Attacking history is a nuclear first strike against conservatism because it erases everything worth conserving. Nothing that predates the party has any authority. An old bit of folk wisdom says, how can you know who you are, where you're going, unless you know where you come from? Totalitarians understand that idea, maybe even better than most conservatives, so they attack the past to make people feel rootless and, and easier to shape. The past cannot be allowed to have any authority that supersedes or challenges the party 
and its progressive ideology. Totalitarians always claim to be progressives who are moving forward and fighting regression. That's an explicit rejection of history and authority. Totalitarians worship power. What better way to demonstrate power than by conquering memory itself, rewriting the past to salt party ideology? The Chinese Communist Party is doing it right now with great ceremony. Challenging its new revised history will be a punishable offense. Revising history is also a cheap way to valorize party ideology and make its members feel heroic. The implication is that if the party had been around 200, 300, 400 years ago, it would have prevented all the injustices it dwells upon. It would have kicked the past's rear end sideways. If only the party and its beautiful ideology had been in power a thousand years ago, we would be a thousand years closer to paradise. Notice how often the past is portrayed with contempt in pop culture. It's dumb, bigoted, sexist authorities humbled by fictional progressive heroes. Every totalitarian movement pushes the idea that history truly began when the party came to power. All that went before was prologue, clay to be shaped by modern political officers to teach whatever ideological lessons they desire. The birth of the party was the dawn of justice. Totalitarians mock what they call the dead hand of the past, but there's actually something quite liberating and individualistic about knowing your history, respecting your traditions, honoring your ancestors. If there were giants before, there can be giants again. If history is a rock, then great things can be built upon it. That's why totalitarians insist on grinding that rock down into sand. They believe ideology can triumph over everything, physics, economics, biology, human nature, and history. Now, isn't that fascinating? Because we heard from this gender therapist who clearly, obviously, must be a totalitarian because, in her mind, ideology can triumph over everything, physics, economics, biology, human nature, even history. Yes, Yes, indeed. John Hayward over Breitbart. I had to, had to share that with you. By the way, for anybody taking seriously for even a moment the prosecution of Kyle Rittenhouse saying that he should have allowed himself to have been beaten up by these people, I don't know if you're old enough to remember the Watts riots and what happened to Reginald Denny after he got dragged out of his truck and beaten senseless with concrete blocks. I don't think he ever really recovered. Always carry. Always carry. All right, now, over the Federalist, Pentagon spokesman says climate change is as big a national security threat as China. Really? Really? They lie a lot, you know? They lie a lot. 
Throw everything up against the wall and see what sticks. Also, the Federalists, they got an exclusive Goodwill, Goodwill Industries, pushing critical race theory through staff training. Goodwill Industries pressuring its stores to adopt critical race theory style training as part of its diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative. Yeah. Right. They lie a lot. You know, if I may, I want to share with you a brief article over in American Greatness by Adam Mill, which is the pen name for the author. Um, graduated from University of Kansas. And uh, he's an attorney specializing in labor and employment and public administration law. He's contributed to the Federalist American Greatness and the Daily Caller. Let me tell you what he's saying today. This article entitled, Why the Rittenhouse Case Has Changed Everything. U.S. News & World Report told readers just three and a half years ago, you don't need an AR-15. In 2018, Think Progress published a piece called The Myth that, Civ that Civilian Gun Ownership Prevents Tyranny. When Ben Shapiro justified private ownership of guns to counter potential tyranny in the United States, CNN's Piers Morgan guffawed contemptuously, Do you understand how absurd you sound? That's what Piers Morgan asked Ben Shapiro in 2013. Until recently, people laughed at the idea that an AR-15 could be used for legitimate self-defense purposes. Nobody's laughing anymore, not even the gun control people. Now we have videos of Kyle Rittenhouse with an AR-15 slung around his shoulder as he waded into a riot-plagued community to hand out bandages and protect property. In the summer of 2020, the mobs ruled, and nobody dared oppose them. They toppled beautiful works of statutory art, they burned businesses and even a police station. They seized real governmental control over several city blocks in one of the country's most important cities. Revolutionaries established other autonomous zones in Washington, D.C., Portland, Oregon, even Asheville, North Carolina. Nobody dared enforce rules regarding private property, social distancing, curfews, or even murder. A year later, the rule of law has finally begun to reassert itself when the Rittenhouse trial judge dismissed the gun charge, it may have spelled doom for the prosecution's theory of the case. The gun charge was key to muddying the self-defense theory and recasting Kyle to look like an aggressor for the mere fact that he possessed the firearm. Like his leftist overlords, the prosecutor has pushed the he shouldn't have been there with a gun narrative as justification for convicting Rittenhouse. On that night... The streets belonged to the righteous mob. Anyone who opposed anything the mob did by then-candidate Biden's definition was a white supremacist. The mob in Kenosha sent a fearful message. You better not anger the mob. Because if the mob can burn down Kenosha, no suburb is safe. Making Americans feel unsafe in the face of unrestrained political violence was what the summer of 2020 was all about. As one author wrote, 
of the violence and looting in the summer of 2020, it seems to have gotten white people's, white people's attention as the uprisings reached their neighborhoods. He said, I hope every white person knows that whatever injustice or fear they might feel is only a shadow of what black people have carried with them their entire lives. It's why we march. It's why we protest. It's the message we've been trying to convey. For months now, the media has been reprising its disgraceful smears against the Covington High School students by heaping lie after lie on the frenzy of lies about Kyle Rittenhouse. The media needed only to know the race of the Kenosha shooter and the politics of the victims. That was enough to invent the rest of the story to fit the narrative. But one thing the media can't hide are the basic facts. No longer can Americans be told the AR-15 is not a legitimate tool for self-defense. The mob physically attacked Rittenhouse three times, each of which attacks easily could have led to Rittenhouse's death. Had Rittenhouse not had the AR-15 to defend himself, he might not be alive today. Everyone who watched the trial saw it. The left doesn't want to punish Rittenhouse for murder. It wants to prevent others from standing up to future mobs to protect themselves. The left rules with fear, and the threat of mob action is its most potent weapon. If Americans know they can legally protect themselves from the mob, the mob will lose its power. That's why Rittenhouse's example is so powerful and why the left is so angry at him. History warns that whether the costume is Bolshevik and or fascist black, the mob is the vanguard of tyranny. Denying the threat of the mob cannot be separated from the prevention of tyranny. Americans have been secretly filling up their closets with firearms for the last several years. By one estimate, there are approximately 17 million AR-15s and similar rifles in private hands. When faced with a violent mob, a pistol with 10 rounds really isn't enough to stay safe. The Rittenhouse case is a case in exactly why Americans have a right to an AR-15. As the jury retires to deliberate, we can't really know for sure what the final outcome will be until the verdict is announced. But thanks again to the Constitution, Rittenhouse received a public trial, and anything short of an acquittal will revive jury intimidation allegations. Americans saw the media lied to them about the facts of the case. While that suits many, even a few leftists expressed shock and surprise at the level of deception. Police and 500 National Guard troops have begun positioning to quell the violence expected following the Rittenhouse verdict. It's one indication that the authorities expect a not guilty verdict, but there's another reason to think there may not be another riot in Kenosha if Rittenhouse is vindicated. Rittenhouse will be free to return to his community to protect it, and so will countless more inspired by his example to hold the line against the left's political violence. Remarkable. That is uh, Adam Mill over the American Greatness website, Why the Rittenhouse Case Has Changed Everything. Subtitle of Rittenhouse Case is a clinic, exactly why Americans have a right to an AR-15. I'll put it on my Facebook page here in just a little bit. All right, uh, that having been said, this has been episode 26 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. 
If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansur Sempier X. Well, that's the way it is. Tuesday, November 16th, 2021.